So welcome to the morning formation, Kurt, military service members, fellow veterans and aspiring future warriors, and those who simply find the military interesting. Get up and get downstairs. It's time for formation. Our guest today is retired First Sergeant Samuel Phillips. He is a military veteran having served 20 years after being drafted at the end of Vietnam in 1971. He's going to share with us some experiences from when he joined the military and what it was like being drafted and how some he has some fascinating stories during his career as well. Hi, First Sergeant. Thank you so much for joining us today. Good morning. All right. So first off, I want to again say thank you. And I want to talk about the draft because it's something that we probably will not see again, hopefully. Who knows? I mean, we're in unprecedented times as it is, but I uh, wanted to talk about what it was like during the times of, of the draft and when it was taking place. And prior to the draft, did you did you think that you were going to be, did you think that your number was going to be called? Well, I was kind of hoping it wouldn't, but, you know, it was at that time in my life, I had a lot of friends that prior to me that got drafted. And it seemed like if you didn't have a reason not to get drafted and you didn't go to college and get out on the college deferment, that it was a sure thing that you were going to get drafted. I mean, that was that was whatever young man my age looked forward to or had to look forward to uh, upon uh, graduating from high school. Either go to college, get a college deferment, or probably going to get drafted and most likely going to go to Vietnam. So uh, I just had to wait and see what happened. And I got my draft notice, and it's being drafted is a lot like having someone in the in the hospital or someone that's sick uh, or one of those things that you you feel like it's not going to happen to me until it does happen to you. And anyway. I just day day go by and I didn't get a draft notice. Another day go by and I didn't. And I think, well, I got lucky. But then one day I got my letter in the mail. I remember that letter said, "Congratulations, you've been selected to serve in the United States military." And uh, but like every young man, I'm sure then when they got that letter, it was something that he was really dreading. Didn't want to, didn't want to go serve, and particularly with the war going on, been going on for years. But anyway, I got my draft notice in December of 1970, and uh, had a reporting date of 20 January 1970 or 1971. And so I reported and uh, got on my Greyhound bus and went from the big city of a population of about 3,000 to uh, Moorhead, Kentucky, and got on that bus in Moorhead, and I rode up to Ashland, Kentucky, which is quite a bit bigger town. That's where we had our induction physical and uh, got our swearing in. So went up and got my physical. There's a lot of a lot of kids there that was my age and a lot of them from Kentucky. So that was a good thing once we got to basic training because we kind of all stuck together in a group. But we got a physical and uh, it was sometime around midnight. We loaded on the bus heading for Fort Knox, Kentucky for basic training. And I remember coming back through my hometown of Moorhead down Highway 60. It's about three o'clock in the morning. Wasn't a soul on the street. And I was stretching my neck as far as I could, trying to see somebody that I knew because I figured once I get on the other side of town, I'm not going to see this town again for quite a while. But uh, not a soul on the street. Anyway, we got on down to Fort Knox and went through the reception station. And, oh, it was a it was a real treat there, getting just a taste of what we thought basic training was going to be like. But, of course, uh, a few days later, once we got our military uniforms and Got into basic training. It was a whole different ball game. Drill sergeants, they, they were good to us. I guess I was 
particularly lucky that during high school and my teenage years and growing up, I was a very, very, very strong runner. At one time, I remember in high school, I had the school record for running a mile and I, I ran all the time. So I was a real strong runner, which was a plus when I got to basic training. And uh, I always got a, a max, almost near a max PT score. And that was as long as you did good in all your training, your drill sergeants left you alone and they were they respected you and they, they liked you because you were tough and strong physically. And uh, I remember uh, normal incidences in basic training. But the one thing I remember that I just kind of accidentally happened was the drill sergeants picked your class platoon leaders. They're actually basic training trainees too, but they're platoon leaders and squad leaders. And uh, they always had a hard time of getting volunteers to clean the bathroom. And uh, I thought, I, I might as well do it. I don't, if I don't, they could probably find something else bad for me to do. So anyway, I always volunteered to clean the bathroom. I did that all the way through basic training. And uh, because I knew it'd either be that or something else I wouldn't like. But come the end of the cycle, basic training, I remember the drill sergeant asking our student platoon sergeant who he would recommend in the platoon to get promoted to E2. And he said, well, remember Private Phillips always cleaned the bathrooms, never gave me any hassle. He always volunteered for those dirty jobs. So I'd like to get him promoted. So I got promoted, only one in the platoon to get promoted to E2 out of basic training. And uh, I left. Now, did that, did, did that actually happen in basic training? Yes, it happened in basic training. So it happened in the rest of the front of your company, your platoon? Right at the end of basic training. Gotcha. So it was in front of the rest of your platoon. So they, they got to see, you know, you get promoted. Oh, yeah, I got promoted. I got promoted. I had E2 stripes on when I went to AIT. Then uh, the drill sergeant had, had us all out in formation, and he had our orders for where we were going to go for AIT. And I can remember, that's another highlight I remember real well that, uh, my drill sergeant was drill sergeant holiday. That's one thing you never forget your drill sergeant's name. Never. Mm-hmm. Drill sergeant holiday mm-hmm. got us out in formation and he started reading the orders. He'd call each name. He'd have the piece of paper with your orders on it. He'd call your name, tell you where you were going for AIT, what your MOS was going to be because they assigned you in the MOS. You didn't have a choice. And uh, I remember him reading those names off when he got to my name. He said, Private Phillips, you're going to Fort Lewis, Washington. You're 11 Charlie, which is infantryman. And he said, since you're going to Fort Lewis, Washington, that's a port of deparkation. My guess would be after AIT, you'll be heading straight to Vietnam. And I thought, oh, that's really, really exciting news. But you know, he'd do that to everybody. And he would say, the ones that are going to like to Fort Polk, Louisiana, you're probably going to be at 11 Bravo. And you're probably going to be going to Vietnam immediately after AIT, too. But uh, I don't know what happened to them. But anyway, I went to Fort Lewis. <clears throat> Pretty country out there. Rained every day. Mm-hmm. I've been there. <laughs> and uh, I did my 11, 11 Charlie training, which is mortars, 81 four deuce mortar. Did all that, and we got close to the end of the cycle. And uh, one evening, a drill sergeant came by, and he said, we need anybody that's got a high school education that wants to go to school to be up in building so-and-so at 1800. And, uh, we got some information for you. So I went up to that building at 1800, me and a few other guys. And they said, if you want, we can send you back to Fort Benning, Georgia for three months where you will be going to NCOES, non-commissioned officer uh, school. And in three months, if you pass, 
you'll be a hard stripe E5. They called it shake and bake school back then because you go to school for a short time, you come out a hard stripe E5. And uh, me and some of my AIT buddies, well, that sounds pretty good. So it means more money. So we volunteered for it and we got sent back to Fort Benning, Georgia. Missed that trip to Vietnam that the drill sergeant promised me. Went back to Fort Benning, Georgia and went to the NCOES for three months and got my hard stripe E5. We graduated and got my hard stripe E5, which is a big pay raise. And uh, after you finish NCOES, I had a choice. We all had a choice. Once we graduate, you either go to a regular T&E unit and be on like a six-month probation. If you do a good job, you get to keep your hard stripe E5, and then you're, you're done. Your probation's over. Or you can go to ranger school, and that will you'll get to school, plus that will be your probation period. Once you finish that, your probation's over. So I thought, shoot, that's sound like a better deal. I can kill two birds, so to speak, with one stone here. I can get my school, and uh, I can get that probation period over at the same time. So they had a a period between then and when ranger school started, and I could look across the street a block away and see the jump towers. And I said, well, why don't I just go over there and go to jump school? And they wanted you to do that anyway. They prefer you do that before you go to ranger school. So, uh, yeah, I volunteered for airborne school and went over there. Three weeks of jump school. And, again, that's another place where they did a lot of running, in which running was an easy thing for me to do. So I zipped right on through airborne school pretty easily. Went out to ranger school and uh, at the end of that three weeks and went out to ranger school. And it was a different sort of life out there. Uh, I had gained some weight. And uh, I normally, when I was drafted, I weighed around 140 pounds. And by the time I got out of airborne school, I had jumped up to about 160s, 165 pounds. And then I got to ranger school and you know, we had three weeks there at Fort Benning, Georgia, and then three weeks up in Dahlonega, Georgia at uh, the mountain ranger camp. And then we had three weeks down in uh, uh, Florida in the swamps for your swamp training. We did a lot of jungle and swamp training back then because that's what the war they were fighting in Vietnam was mostly swamp and jungle. So that's what they practiced. So I went down there and, uh, by the time I got out of the swamps in Florida, and they put us on a, wasn't a Greyhound, it was a, the other bus they had back then. They put us on a bus, and we came back to Fort Benning for graduation. And when I got back to Fort Benning, I weighed 130 pounds. I'd gone from 160 or 65, whichever I weighed, down to 130. And uh, again, in ranger school, my running paid off there because we go out on a run in the morning one time. I'm kind of backtracking back and forth, but I meant to say this earlier, but one particular incident in ranger school, the cadre was taking us out for a run. We didn't know where we was at. We was out in a place in the country and country roads where we didn't know the terrain or didn't know the roads. But when we got back to where the road looked familiar and I knew we was getting close back to close to the Darby Ranger camp, I, let, I just took off. I didn't know if I was allowed to or not. I took off and I got passed all the whole company formation. I passed the cadre that was leading the formation. He tried to keep up with me and couldn't do it. And I got back to the ranger camp first. And so I got 25 extra points. Ranger school was based on a thousand point uh, program. And every time you do something wrong or you fail some kind of test or you fail a patrol, you did something not to their standards, they take points away. 
So what that did for me, kind of, so to speak, I started out instead of a thousand points, I started out with 1,025 points. So that was good. So anyway, finished ranger school, got my tab, something I was really proud of. I went home for, uh, I believe it was 20, 20 day leave. I got orders, by the way, to go. My first duty assignment was not to go to Vietnam. Like uh, me and my buddy kept volunteering. We wanted to go because we thought we was going to do all we could do and then get out at the end of our two years. But my first duty assignment turned out to be in uh, Germany. But I went home for a 20-day leave and the end of December, 1st of January. Now, now, now hang on a second. So at this point, you'd been gone from from your hometown for how long? Almost exactly a year. I left there on uh, January 20th, and it was uh, Mm -hmm. around when I went back of the next year. So I'd been in school for a year, basic A. It's amazing because you accomplished so much in a year. Yeah, I did. Well, as a matter of fact, when I went back on that 20-day leave, uh, after I got my my hunger quenched, because I went home, like I said, I weighed 130 pounds. And this is the how hungry you were from living through the swamps in Florida where you got little to no food. Ten days after I got home on that 20-day leave, I had went from 130 to 190 pounds. <laughs> wow. <laughs> in 10 days, I gained 60 pounds. That was a temporary weight. But, but anyways, fall out. Fall. You remember the first, the first uh, thing that you were looking to eat? Like what, was, uh, what were you missing the most? Everything. I, I could back up and I could tell you this. When we came out of the swamps in Florida to uh, back up to the the base camp there at Eglin Air Force Base, mm-hmm. the cadre's wives had a cake sale. And I'd had a, a $20 bill stuck in the bottom of my shoe for nine weeks. I bought two two big chocolate cakes from those women that were selling them. And I sat down over there and leaned up against a Quonset hut. The sun was shining. I was finally getting dried out. And I had to eat that cake with my hand, just like a baby would on his first birthday. And I ate two cakes right there. And that, that was nothing. And then I, bought, then I bought a big sack of candy and potato chips and pretzels to eat on the bus on the way back to Fort Benning. Mm-hmm. Trailways bus, not Greyhound. It was Trailways. As soon as you mentioned the 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 bake sale, I totally knew where that was going. Mm, yeah, because most. Of, so how sick were you? How sick were you after eating all that junk? Oh no, I wasn't sick. I wanted to. Oh, you wasn't eat and go to sleep. That's all I wanted to do. Uh, but I, I did go when I after on that twenty day leave after I got my hunger quenched. I jumped in my car and from Moorhead and drove down to Fort Knox, Kentucky, and uh, it's about a three hour trip three-and-a-half-hour trip, and I went back to my old D-18-4 basic training company. I looked around there and walked in the mess hall, and there's a bunch of drill sergeants sitting around the table. So I went back mm-hmm. went back and sat down with them, and there was Drill Sergeant Holiday. And I told him who I was, and he said, well, I kind of remember you, but I told him mm-hmm. when I was there and where I'd been up until that day there. And he said, I'm really proud of you. He said, you're one of them that did good. But uh, anyway, then that that 20 days was up and I took off and went to Germany. Uh, I was only in Germany for one year. At the end of that tour, I thought, you know, this is not that bad. I've enjoyed it. It's, it's a lot of physical ability to, to do good and, and 
So I, I said, I think I'll, I'll just re-enlist. And they, they threw that thing in front of you where if you re-enlist, you get $10,000. But well, I could use the money and it's a pretty good job too. So I re-enlisted for six more years. And $10,000 back then was $10,000. That's a lot of money, right? That's a whole lot of money. Yeah. That was a lot of money. And and this was 1970, 73? 72. 1972. Okay. So at this point, you'd been in about two years, right? Well, yeah, it was end of, it was the end of 72 when I re-enlisted. They took $2,000 out in taxes, of course, which they don't tell you that until time to pay you. <laughs> but I was assigned to the 1st Battalion, 509th Bravo Company, 1st Battalion, 509th Infantry. It was the only airborne mechanized unit in the United States Army then. And, you know, if you think about it, there's a good reason for that. You just don't go dropping a whole lot of mechanized, heavy mechanized equipment out of airplane. So I had a good time. I got to travel a lot around Europe. I did some traveling on my own, you know, on the weekend and holidays and take leave and go to a few places that wasn't too far away. I had a car, but we drove. I became real good. Now, what part of Germany was that? That was in Mainz, Wiesbaden, across the river from uh, Wiesbaden, uh, about 25 miles. Okay. I'm not sure which direction from uh, Frankfurt, but I'm sure a lot of people have heard of Wiesbaden Air Base, big hospital medical unit where they take a lot of injured soldiers too. Yeah, I've actually heard of that before. So where did you travel while you were there? Uh, let me think for a second. We got to go. To, uh, that was before... The, the Berlin Wall was taken down. It mm-hmm. was still east and west Berlin. So we got to take a pretty interesting trip to East Berlin. We actually got to cross the wall, go over to the other side, and got to go through Checkpoint Charlie then. And it was kind of interesting to see the checkpoint in operation. They had these like creepers on a big stick with mirrors on top, and they'd run them under your bus, and they'd look all around underneath the buses, and they'd come inside and look around and go go over there and I can remember people actually would come up to you and ask if there's any way you can take me back with you when you go. No, nope. <laughs> Don't even talk about it. But we had, all had to kind of stay together. From west to east Germany? Yeah. Oh. It'd be east to west, wouldn't it? East to west, yeah. Um, yeah, that was the communist side that wanted to come back. You're right. But uh, that was... There in Germany, I got to go to travel to Switzerland while I was over there. I went to St. Moritz, Switzerland, stayed a few days. Went to Austria and up, I'd say, God, it's been so long. I'd say probably around October of 1972, battalion commander sent out a request to each company. Do you have any soldiers that wants to go and that you would recommend them to go to Belgium commando school. And of course, I was all for that and I wanted to go. So I, I let them know that I wanted to go. If you'll choose me, I'd appreciate it. So there was 10 of us from my company got to go to Belgium commando school. We had to ride a train and we went to Marshall Adams, Belgium. And uh, where we got there, arrived, stayed the first day or two in a, an old big castle, actually a castle with a dungeon and everything in it, just like you see in the pictures. And we started the commando school. They said, when we left, the colonel said that we've heard that this school is harder than the United States Ranger School. I said, well, if it's any harder, it's going to be tough. But we got there and it, it was not nearly as hard as Ranger School. They give you food to eat there. You have to go on a lot of 
reconned and you do a lot of marching. A lot, they did a lot of mountain climbing, repelling and mountain cliff climbing. Had a, a escape and evasion course that was 26 miles long. They took you, actually took you out into the middle of a town hmm. and dropped you off. You wasn't in the woods. You was in a town where you had escape and evasion all the way back to the castle. And if you get on the roads, you know, they'd come along, pick you up, and then you'd be caught. So you kind of had to use the roads when you felt like you could and stay off the roads when you could. But I remember we got back, and it was a couple of three days later. We got back to the castle, but the castle then, we looked over, and it was on the far side of a river that was almost twice as wide as the Ohio River is here in Ohio. Mm-hmm. So we had to figure out how we are going to get across there. And we just looked around and found uh, some people with boats and I guess most of them had been instructed, don't pick up any military and take them across the river. they got to find out their own way. But we found some. We found one. We got to ride across the river. <laughs> took a while. During commander school? Yeah. Oh, my goodness. And they took us across the river and let us out, and we made it back. I remember a couple of other things in commando school that was not real pleasant. Like It was in December in Belgium, so it was about, about like the weather here in Ohio. And we had to repel down over top of a waterfall, soaking wet, had a big lake we had to cross over. And I guess they figured that hypothermia would keep you from making it. So they'd give you a bale of straw for a flotation device. And so we're, you, we're talking about freezing, freezing temperatures, snow, ice, everything. Oh, yeah. Ice. They had that little lake they had out there. They had to break the ice off of it sometimes for us to go in and play in it. <laughs> Got my bale of straw and. I did what I had to do there. I used to have some pictures of that, but it's, they're gone now. Anyway, we made it through uh, Belgian Commando School, and that was one of the last things that I did in Germany before I got uh, reassigned back to Fort Knox. And, of course, my unit in Germany was an airborne unit, and I I did a lot of jumping over there. We went to England. I didn't m- mention that. We got to go to England. and We planned on going to uh, English Airborne School, but when we got there, and the, that, that didn't happen because of the weather. Mm-hmm. So we just got, we got to make some jumps. I got to jump uh, out of a hot air balloon with a basket underneath. You got to actually get in the basket and open up the gate and jump out. That's cool. That's what they use in, in England at that time. They used a hot air balloon instead of the 250-foot towers like we had at Fort Benning. They used a hot air balloon to learn to jump from. That's crazy. So out of the 10 people that went to the commando school, how many, did everyone make it? Everyone made it, yeah. Okay. And uh, like I say, that was toward the end of my tour in, in Germany. And, I, and because I'd been on airborne status and I'd been jumping for a year, I wanted to continue to jump. And I got orders to go. I wanted to go to Fort Campbell, 101st, because they were on jump status at that time. I got orders to go to Fort Knox, Kentucky instead. So uh, I couldn't get them changed. But when I got back to Kentucky, I actually drove, got in my car, and I drove from uh, Moorhead, Kentucky, to Fort Campbell, Kentucky, and went to see the post sergeant major to see if he could get my orders changed. He said, no. I said, I can't change them. He said, Department of Army has to cut your orders for you. He said, what is the reason you want to come here so bad? And I said, well, I want to stay on jump status. He informed me then. He said, well, young man, as I'll tell you, if that's the biggest reason you want to come here, you're wasting your time because he said it's only a short time. I don't remember if he said within the next year, but shortly. Fort Campbell is going to go off of jump status and they won't be jumping anymore anyway. And I said, well, if they won't be jumping, I just soon stay at Fort Knox anyway. So stayed at Fort Knox. 
they had one infantry battalion at Fort Knox at that time. And I thought I was going to go to that, but uh, mm-hmm. I didn't. I got to Fort Knox and they assigned me to committee group. And uh, committee group is where all the people goes to learn to teach basic trainees a particular skill. So I got assigned to a rifle range and had to go to school to learn how to teach classes for three weeks. It was a pretty hard class, actually, because it had to be a exact certain way. Every word mm-hmm. had to be precise. Yep. It's, anyway, I, I know exactly what you're talking about as far as instructing. And um, so basically you were looking to become part of the cadre there, not. Yeah. Okay. So you're going to be part of like the, the basic training, not a drill instructor so much, but just part of the cadre that just teaches the specific basic rifle marksmanship. Right. I go to work in the morning, I'd head straight for the rifle range. And that's where I would wait until the drill sergeant brought a company of trainees down there. And then I would train them on mm-hmm. the Pacific uh, task that I'd been on the range that they had there, which was at that time, it was a quick fire called a quick fire technique. Uh, <clears throat> so, and you're an E5 right now. I was E5 then. Sergeant. Okay. Uh, Sergeant E5. And I showed up, I remember showing up there and, and people looked at me and I had on my starch fatigues all pressed out like I'd been doing it every day in Germany. Spit sign, jump boots, starch fatigues. I said, Lord, we're going out in the country to a rifle range. You dress like you're going to church. But, <laughs> but uh, I liked it there. I had a good time. It was, that was a good assignment. How long was that assignment? I was there in a committee group for let's see, 72, about two, two and a half years total. And it's uh, a long time. Yeah. Uh, while I was in committee group, during summer, they have ROTC cadets come to Fort Knox. That was where they had their basic training camp. They took me out of committee. I was still in committee group, but they took me off the rifle range, and I was transporting ammunition to the different ranges out there for the cadets to use. And while I was working in that department, mm-hmm. I ran across a guy that uh, had a – he was an instructor for a civilian parachute club. And he talked me into, he didn't take much talking. He just let me know. And he said, you've been airborne already and everything. So you know everything there is to know about jumping. He said, I'll tell you what, I said, I'll bring a parachute in with me next week, go through the safety procedures and kind of explain to you everything that we do out there. And he said, when you come over there on the weekend, you already have your certificate. You just go up and jump if you want to. So I said, sure, we'll do that. And I remember that so well because it costs seven dollars wow. to go over there, get one of their parachutes, go up in the airplane, jump out. Seven dollars. <laughs> so I go over and jump four or five times a day, you know. And uh, and then it was it was right at the end of that uh, tour with committee group. Then that I decided that I like the way them drill sergeants look out there. And uh, in 1975, I put in all the paperwork to go volunteer to go to drill sergeant school. And you had to go get physicals. You had to get a, a mental evaluation and fill out a whole lot of paperwork and send it in. Got approved. I finally got it approved in 1975 to go to drill sergeant school. And then that started a whole new chapter of, of my military career that I, I truly enjoyed. It. it was a real tough job being a drill sergeant because not exaggerating at all. There's many, many, many days that you go home at night at 10 o'clock and you get back up at three o'clock to go back in and wake up the trainees to go to work that day. 
it was like you had to be there when they closed their eyes and go to sleep, and you had to be there when they opened their eyes to start their next mm-hmm. day. You know, that's a very formidable part of any military service member's time. I don't care what extra school you go to, it's you always go back to your basic or boot camp and think about the people that you worked with. You think about the drill instructors that had a huge impression on you because a lot of times you're 18, 19 years old and you go to basic and boot camp and these are the first people that you've ever experienced outside of your comfort zone who are going to be teaching you and taking care of you for, you know, weeks and weeks and weeks. And then you accomplish all these things, you graduate. So I could see why you would want to be a part of that, you know, part of that process because it's, it's a very meaningful process. It's like I said, it's a very formidable time for every service member. I can't tell you, um, we're going to jump into your drill instructor time, your drill sergeant time on the next podcast, but just to, uh, just to put it into perspective, I mean, think about how many trainees and how many people, how many people's lives you actually affected, you know, for better or for worse. I mean, your interactions with them, you know, as you just stated, you know, from 10 PM at night to, you know, you know, early next morning, you're, you were the face, like you were what they saw. You were mom, you were dad, like you were, you were everything, you know, for that, for that time period. So I think it's, uh, my hat's off to you for, for volunteering and stepping up and, and doing that extra, that extra thing. Cause it's, it's a very important building block for any service member, I think. But I wanted to go back and ask you, um, take it all the way back to the beginning with the, uh, with the draft. I mean, you were voluntold, you know, with the, with the draft to join the military, but what was going on at your li- with your life at that time? I mean, were you just working and, and do you ever often think, go back and think about what your life would be like had you not been drafted? Oh yeah. I've, I've gone back in my mind and thought about that. And, uh, you know, that's, it, it might be hard for some people to understand, but that's being drafted was probably one of the best things that could have happened to me at that, at that time in my life. Uh, I was like a lot of kids, especially kids from down in uh, Kentucky. There was nothing to do. And a lot of kids were getting in trouble and ended up not amounting to nothing. I think maybe if, uh, if I hadn't got drafted, I'd have went right along with that bunch of kids and, I wouldn't. I, I I didn't really have the opportunity to go to school to college. Mm-hmm. I wasn't doing anything with my life to make it better. I was just kind of kind of just gliding along with whatever happened, and I wasn't doing too too. You know, I wasn't doing anything productive for myself. And uh, actually, at that time, I was working with my brother. We were helping him build houses, doing a lot of drinking and carousing around and carrying on. And, wasn't doing nothing important. So getting drafted, uh, I've said it for years that it's probably one of the healthiest things that ever happened to me. Right. And being in the physical condition that I was in, because, you know, building houses, putting roofs on a house, that was, that was tough. But uh, being a, a strong runner, strong physically, lifted weights quite a bit when I was in my early teens. And uh, I was just strong. And I think that's what made the military when I went in, that's what made the military easy for me. I didn't, I didn't mind it at all. Uh, Cause every task that they gave me, I could accomplish it and still have a lot of oomph left in my body and didn't, didn't, it, it didn't get me down. And I think any, any soldier that 
that's going in the military needs to keep that in mind and mm-hmm. be physically ready and they will get you mentally prepared once you get there mm-hmm. but being physically prepared is uh, that's like half the battle yeah that is that's more than half the battle because like i said you don't they're going to get you mentally prepared once you get there. Mm-hmm. They're going to tell you what to mm-hmm. think, how to think, when to think. Because I, I remember even when I went to basic training, the folks that came in without the physicality and or, and didn't have the the mental side of it, they had such a steep. They didn't have a mountain. They had, a, they had they had a cliff that they had to climb. And so, preparedness. You know, I don't I don't think you could prepare yourself mentally for that initial training. I think it's kind of impossible when you're living at home or, or you're living in a civilian world, but you can prepare yourself. Like you said, physically, like you can get yourself physically ready, but you can, you, I don't believe that you can put yourself into a basic or boot camp type of environment out here in the civilian world. So you're right. Like the physicality part of it is something that you can definitely, definitely prepare for if you put your mind to it. And, um, that that makes a lot of sense. Your your uh, your military career is absolutely fascinating because it was completely from a different time. I mean, even from the time that I served um, and the time you served, things were so different. And just hearing about the draft and hearing about you know how the military gave you the opportunity to progress in life and gave you presented you with different things and said, "Hey, do you want this? Do you want that?" Whereas had you stuck around your hometown and built houses, that's kind of a slow crawl. You're probably not going to encounter those opportunities that you got while you're in while you're in the army. So I can I can understand where you're coming from, and I feel the same way too. Even when I left for my training and came back, and I would see what everyone else was doing, I felt like I accomplished a lot. And I come back and I see everyone just sitting on the same old bar stools, drinking the same beer, and listen to the same music. So definitely I, I agree with you 150% with that. So I want to save um, the drill sergeant time, you know, because you spent just to lead and segue into the next podcast. Just want to tell everyone that first sergeant here actually uh, spent five years. Total of five, three years and a two year break and two more years. Yeah. So he volunteered to come back and jump back into it again, which is uh, sort of unheard of because a lot of times, you know, being DI, a drill instructor, um, it's super challenging. I mean, you're literally there almost 24 hours a day and you're in charge of these young trainees, you know, 24 hours a day, you know, 365 days a year, you know, with different cycles. So very challenging detail to do. I'll jump into that on the next podcast. I just want to sum everything up for what we talked about here, you know, as far as the hometown, you know, getting drafted there, all the opportunities that the military gave you from there on out. I mean, nothing was planned. Like you didn't go into the military saying, Hey, I'm going to go to jump school. I'm going to go to ranger school. I'm going to go to Germany. It just kind of, I kind of saw it as kind of like a, you're standing in the middle of this field and you have an azimuth on your compass and the military gave you a direction. It gave you a vehicle to actually go in that direction faster than you would have just building houses. You took advantage of those opportunities. And there's a lot of people that are given those opportunities when they're in the military, they just don't take them. All right. Do you have anything uh, final before we wrap it up? Nope. I'll let you wrap her up. All right. Well, I appreciate your time and thank you everyone for listening to the Formation Podcast. Tune in again for the next podcast. We're, we're going to go into what it was like going through the schooling as well as what, what it was like for being a drill instructor for five years. All right. Thank you for listening today. Please can subscribe to the, uh, to the podcast. We're going to be putting stuff up every week. Thanks again. I appreciate it for starting. Thank you much. Appreciate it.
You've been listening to the Morning Formation Podcast. I hope you found today's materials helpful and of value to your current situation. You can connect with me on Instagram at the underscore morning underscore formation underscore podcast. Or you can connect with me via email at theformationpodcaster at gmail.com. Also, I would like to thank my partners at Act Now Education for their support. Authenticity, community, and trusted is what you can expect from all members of the Act Now Education team. You can link up with them today and learn about some new free educational resources on their Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, or at their website, actnoweducation.com. Whether today's show took you back to a nostalgic time or helped you think about tomorrow, thank you for tuning in, and I look forward to seeing you again. Stay safe and stay motivated. Warriors, fall out.